0: Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: Well, good morning, my name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I wanna welcome you again to our Sunday service today. For the past month and a half, we've been going through a special sermon series in response to the global pandemic. And every week, we've looked at a biblical response to a specific feeling that we've commonly and collectively experienced during this time of quarantine. We've looked at what do we do, what to do when I feel afraid, to do when i feel lonely overwhelmed powerless mortal and thirsty and today we're going to close out this sermon series with one final question what to do when i feel wronged it's true that times of crises bring out the best and the worst in people there have been so many encouraging stories that we have all witnessed or heard during this pandemic from everyday acts of kindness and selfless giving to people risking their own lives to serve others without hesitation. Because of the empty sidewalks and streets, many New Yorkers are less hurried and impatient and more likely to let someone else go ahead of them or do the unthinkable. Wave to a stranger on the street. But for every positive story that I hear of, uh, every story about decency and goodwill, it seems that there are two stories of thoughtlessness and ill will. Sure, there are instances of kindness, but there's still a whole lot of rudeness. I've seen people yelling at strangers on the sidewalk for not properly observing social distancing. Sure, there's selfless giving but there's a whole lot more of selfish hoarding every day the people in our city come together at 7 p.m. to gratefully acknowledge the heroic efforts of our healthcare professionals. But I've heard firsthand from Asian American doctors and nurses in this same city report being reviled and even attacked for causing this pandemic. And isn't it true that while good news might cheer us up momentarily, the bad news, it can actually cause us to spiral into bitterness and outrage for a whole lot longer. I'm betting that in the past two months, each one of us at some point has felt wronged in some way. Wronged by our elected officials, wronged by ignorant racial stereotypes and attacks, wronged by roommates, family members, or coworkers. And how did you respond? Some of us might have responded better than others. But all of us have probably responded in the past to insult and injustice in ways that in hindsight we've come to regret. So what should I do when I feel wronged? You know, the first thing I did when I sat down to prepare this sermon this week was what every good pastor should do. I Googled it. I typed in what to do when I feel wronged. And the very first hit was an article on psychologytoday.com titled, Stay Right When You're Wronged. And I thought, perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Here are some of the key suggestions presented in the article, and they're actually not bad. Number one, get centered. Uh, This may take a dozen seconds or so, Pause, have compassion on yourself, get on your own side and then start to make a plan. Number two, now that you're centered, clarify the facts and rate the bad event accurately. So on a scale of zero to 10 with one being a dirty look and 10 being all out war, how bad was it really? If the event was a three, then why am I acting like it was a nine? Number three, see the big picture and only do what you can concretely do. Number four, now you're ready to move on. For your own sake, start releasing your angry or hurt thoughts and feelings. Stop your mind from obsessing about the past and focus on the present and future. Turn toward what is going well. Think about what you're grateful for Do things that feel pleasurable. And number five, finally, find peace in your own heart, not out there. Pretty good stuff. And it might just work when the bad event is actually a three. But what if it's a nine or a ten? Try telling a holocaust survivor to see the big picture and do what you can concretely do. Try telling a woman who has endured years of abuse to move on and release your angry or hurt thoughts and feelings. Try telling the Asian family with young children in Texas who were each stabbed because they're Asian, tell them to do things that feel pleasurable. Try a family game night. This isn't enough. It's not even close. So I guess we are going to have to look at what the Bible tells us we should do when we feel wronged. Our passage today, it comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. And these are perhaps some of the most famous parts of the sermon. Do any of these phrases sound familiar to you? turn the other cheek, the shirt off my back, go the extra mile. Those familiar sayings are all from our passage today. And Jesus tells us in this passage what Christian retaliation should look like. How should his followers respond to insults and injustice? What do I do when I feel wronged? And he introduces this section by saying, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Now, on the surface, this may seem like Jesus is contradicting the Old Testament law concerning restitution. Uh, This is a common misconception that there is a dichotomy between the Old Testament God of wrath. And the New Testament, Jesus of love. The Old Testament says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus now says, turn the other cheek. And this simply is not true. Jesus himself said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is not abolishing the Old Testament law, but he's fulfilling it. And he starts by giving us the full meaning of the law. Notice that he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. He could have said you know that it is written he's not disputing the law but he's critiquing the way that the law was currently being used interpreted the purpose of this particular law in the old testament was to ensure that the punishment was equitable and would fit the crime it was designed to limit retribution and put parameters around restitution This reveals a lot about the human heart. There needs to be a law limiting retribution because my natural inclination, when I'm wronged, is more often than not to seek revenge, not justice. So if you hit me, I'm gonna get angry, and I'm going to try to hit you back harder than you hit me, if you steal from me, I'm not going to just try to get my property back, but I'm going to want you to suffer. Take my donkey, and I'm going to take your wife and kids. This is the human condition. My main concern is my dignity being impugned, not justice being met. If I'm honest with myself, what I ultimately want is not to serve a just king, but I just want to be king. This is why this law was necessary, to prohibit anyone from exacting greater vengeance than what was appropriate. This law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it is necessary and good. But Jesus' problem is that people were using this law as grounds and license for personal vengeance. The original law, it was meant to curb and limit Vengeance. But the religious leaders were interpreting this law to ensure personal retribution. Get every cent that is owed to you, not one penny less. So people were obeying this law, but what was in their hearts, their hearts were filled with bitterness and resentment toward people who had wronged them. So what Jesus is doing here in this passage is he's shining a light on the biggest problem our hearts our broken and sinful hearts and he's been doing this all along in the sermon on the mount in earlier verses jesus had said you've heard that it was said you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment but i say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. It's not just murder, but it's the heart, the anger in the heart, the bitterness. What Jesus is saying is you can obey the letter of the law, but your heart is a cesspool of sin that cannot be saved by obeying the law. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. And Jesus, like he did earlier in the sermon, with anger and lust, he now talks about retribution and he makes sure that no one can say they're righteous by obeying the law. Look at verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. Now, it's important to note that these are not literal commands to be followed in every situation, but they're more of general principles. They're examples of what Christian retribution should ideally look like. So earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed the sin of lust, and he said in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. But I would be a terrible pastor if I was counseling someone who was struggling with lust and I got out my pocket knife and I said, come here, let me pluck out your right eye. Jesus is being hyperbolic to illustrate his point. Be radical and extreme in your hatred of sin. Do not compromise an inch in your battle against lust. And the same is true here. Jesus specifies the right cheek. So if someone slaps my left cheek, does this no longer apply to me? No. Jesus specifies the right cheek because most people are right-handed. So if I were to slap you with my right hand, it would ordinarily be on your left cheek. But Jesus is not talking about an ordinary slap. I would strike you on the right cheek if I struck you with my left hand or if I came in with a backhand. A backhanded slap, even today, is a sign of utter contempt and disrespect. In Jesus' time, this was the worst and most humiliating insult anyone could give or endure. You could get fined a year's wages for doing this. Jesus is taking this example all the way to the most extreme possible insult. So what he's saying is when the insult is a nine or a 10 on the savage scale, give your other cheek. And he doesn't qualify it further. He doesn't say, if you deserve it, then don't resist. So let me modernize this example for us. I'm sure that some of you have seen the video footage of an attacker throwing acid at an Asian woman's face in Brooklyn last month. And it's one of numerous hate crimes that have been reported across this country during this time. What if Jesus were to say, If someone throws acid in your face because of your race, and the acid didn't get your entire face, offer the rest of your face to the attacker. Does this sound crazy? It absolutely did to the people listening to to Jesus that day on the mountain. But you know what? He's just getting started. Look at verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. So in this example, you're being sued, rightly or wrongly, for a debt. In Jesus' time, clothing was valuable and quite expensive. So ordinary people typically had one pair of shoes and maybe one or two changes of clothing. People wore an inner garment called a tunic and an outer garment called a robe or a cloak. And the law permitted the seizure of a tunic, either as payment or if the amount was greater than the cost of the tunic, the shirt would be collateral. It would be a physical IOU until the actual payment was rendered. But the law forbade the seizure of a robe. Because the robe was a man's covering. It was his blanket at night. It was associated with a person's very identity. Remember, all the way back in Genesis, what Joseph's multicolored robe symbolized. Jesus is saying, when you're accused, falsely or justly, don't defend your honor. When you're sued for a payment, give your very identity and self freely to the person suing you. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Isn't it the worst? If you ever wanna see my kids lose it, blame them for something their brother did. What if someone accuses you of bringing COVID here from Asia? Have you ever been cheated or scammed? That feeling when when it dawns on you and you realize you're a sucker, you've been had? Jesus is saying, don't fight for your honor. Let people defraud you. Turn the other cheek. Eat the cost. Lose. What? How? Why? No. But he's not done. Verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And commentators say that there was one Roman law that the local Jewish citizens hated the most. Any Roman soldier could commandeer and force any local citizen in an occupied land to carry their equipment for up to a thousand paces, roughly a mile. This law was particularly demeaning because you had to help a foreign oppressor carry the very instruments and tools he was using to oppress you. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus, he he commented on this particular law, and he advised people not to resist and to just do it. Because, you know what? If you resist, you're going to get beaten, and you're going to end up doing it anyway. That was his reasoning, but that's not Jesus' reasoning. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying After you've completed the required service, freely give more. This isn't just don't fight back. This is give on top of what is demanded of you, even when what is demanded of you is absurd and unjust. When you're oppressed, serve your oppressors twice as hard. And Jesus goes on to say, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And again, no limits, no qualifications. This was not a legal duty during this time. People were not obligated to do this by law. But Jesus tells us that restraining ourselves from retribution is not enough. We need to turn around and do good even when evil is done to us. It's one thing to hold yourself back when you've been mistreated, but to give everything up for our enemies? Jesus goes on and he puts the nail in the coffin. Verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Anyone can do that. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? If you are God's children, you need to be different from everyone else. You need to adhere to a different ethical standard than the rest of the world. You need to demonstrate a love and compassion that goes beyond and against every natural and sinful inclination that I have. In fact, verse 48, here's the clincher. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is what the law demands. This is what God demands. Nothing short of perfection will save you. If you cannot do this, then you aren't good enough to be accepted by God. Now, I'm sure you're asking yourself the same question that Jesus' audience must have been asking themselves. Who can possibly do this? Who can possibly live up to this? I can't. I can't do this. But you know what? There is someone who can and did for me and you. The whole point of this sermon is to tell people that they aren't good. They can't live up to the demands of the law, no matter how hard they tried. They can't be saved by the law. They need a Savior. So how does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, he obeys it perfectly on our behalf. You know what? You and I, we can't turn the other cheek. Maybe when it's a three, but certainly not at a ten. But Jesus... At the end of Matthew's gospel, he is mocked, spit on, beaten, and crowned with thorns. And he turns the cheek. Jesus is falsely accused and sentenced to death by crucifixion. And you know what? He doesn't defend his honor. And Matthew twenty-seven thirty-one says that when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the robe as they led him away to crucify him. And as Jesus stumbles under the weight of his own cross, Simon of Cyrene is compelled to carry Jesus' cross for him. Jesus prays for his enemies on the cross that they would be forgiven. And Jesus, as he dies, He gives his spirit. Everything that Jesus commands here in Matthew 5, he fulfills in Matthew 27. He turns the cheek. He gives up the robe. He goes the extra mile. He gives himself. He loves and prays for his enemy. He fulfills the law. But it's not enough that Jesus is an example. That doesn't do anything for me. Like when I was in high school, my mom kept comparing me to my friend Sarah's brother, who got 1,600 on his SATs, started 17 clubs, perfect GPA, and got into Harvard early decision. I hated Sarah's brother. Jesus, he doesn't do all of this to show us that he can do it. He does all of this for us. You know how we can start trying to do this? When you think of Jesus' death, let me ask you, when you picture the crucifixion in your mind, who are you in that narrative? When we think about the crucifixion, we often place ourselves on the road to Calvary as bystanders watching maybe with the disciples from a distance or with the women watching the unfolding events but we're not bystanders in the story we're actually the bad guys in the story not innocent bystanders we're the ones who are mocking beating spitting and crucifying jesus we're his enemies because of sin And it's when we realize that Jesus loved us, his enemies, who in no way deserve to be loved, now we can start to live like this, out of gratitude, not out of duty or obligation. We are now free to give. We are free to forgive. Free to love our enemies because Jesus Loved us. You know what the easiest way is for me to get you to forgive a $5 debt? It's to give you $5 billion. And that's what God does for us. We have done to God far worse than anything a human can do to us. This is how we can forgive when we are wrong. Now, you might still be asking, but shouldn't we stand up against evil and injustice? Shouldn't we fight for justice? When do we turn our cheeks and when do we stand up and speak up for ourselves and others? Well, Jesus in our passage, he reminds us twice that we have a father in heaven and that we are his children, so we must be like him. And what is God like? God hates injustice. God hates evil. Much more than we do. So we should hate it too. Elsewhere in the Bible, we are commanded to resist evil. Resist the devil, James tells us, and he will flee from you. And scripture is replete with commands to defend the poor, the orphan, the widow. We are to speak the truth in love, according to Ephesians 4. So it is appropriate to be angered by injustice. But there is a very fine line between righteous anger and self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is never okay. Arrogance and pride are never appropriate for the Christian. The only attitude we can ever have as Christians is humility. We are to speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love and humility. If we speak truth without love, then our truth becomes arrogant and offensive. But if we speak truth in love, it will point others to our Heavenly Father. So speak up for the oppressed. We speak out against racism and evil. You know, if you ever get a chance, uh, read Martin Luther King Jr.'s Eulogy for the Martyr Children. Uh, In September of 1963, four little black girls were killed by a white supremacist who bombed their church while they were in Sunday school. And MLK gave the eulogy at the funeral, and it's one of the most powerful things that I've ever read. And he urges people to be neither passive nor vengeful. And he anchors his hope and comfort in the God of justice. We have a Father in heaven who loves us and hates injustice, and we trust that he will one day right every wrong. He will hold every act of evil and injustice to account. He will fix every broken thing and wipe away every tear. Do you believe this? Do you trust this God of justice? You know, when we try to take revenge, we are failing to trust God as judge. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, Paul says in Romans. He is a much better judge and king than we are. So we can let our personal grievances go, knowing that evil will one day answer to him and be eradicated forever. You know, when my kids fight and they blame each other, I I tell them, I say, don't hit one another come to me. Let me handle it. I know better than you do. God is our Father. So what does Christian retaliation to evil look like? Well, it looks like a father with his son. You know, last week, my, uh, my middle child, Caleb, he threw an epic tantrum against me. Uh, he screamed at me, he hit me repeatedly, he scratched up my arm and my chest trying to hurt me. So as a father, I had to use force. I held him tightly so he couldn't hurt me anymore. And I used the least possible amount of force just to prevent him from hurting others or himself. And I wasn't um, upset or, or indignant that how dare you do this to me and defy my authority. Through tears, I told him that I loved him, but that I could not let him hurt his family anymore. I loved him and I prayed for him. And this is how God, our Father, deals with us, because this is how we treat him. And we're called to love others and treat others the same way when they hurt us. So what to do when I feel wronged? Well, I can trust in him. I can trust that evil will not win. It will not prevail. It will not have the final word. And then I can remember what Jesus has done for me, his enemy. And now as God's son. I can freely turn the cheek i can give of myself i can go the extra mile i can love and pray for my enemies because jesus did it for me let's pray together father i thank you uh, for the good news that though we were your enemies you loved us and though we sinned against you You gave up everything to redeem us. And we thank you that Jesus has obeyed the law and fulfilled it perfectly for us so that we can be accepted and adopted as children of God. Thank you that we have a Father who loves us and who hates injustice. May we trust in you, as a wiser judge than we will ever be. And I pray that when we are insulted, attacked, and hurt, we will not lash out, but we will love trusting in you and knowing that you have loved us first. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.